Welcome to Voices of Experience. Here's your host, Kate Delaney. Hi, this is Kate Delaney with the December Voices of Experience. Throughout this edition, you'll hear clear evidence of big heart, including a special conversation with breast cancer surgeon Dr. Pamela Benitez Molidor. That's right, she's President John's better half. She's very passionate about what she does. Do you feel the same way? Are you giving back, paying it forward somehow? Cue the poetry reading music, please. Here's one from poet Emily Dickinson. I think she sums it up best. If I can stop one heart from breaking, I shall not live in vain. If I can ease one life the aching, or cool one pain, or help one fainting robin unto his nest again, I shall not live in vain. Enjoy big heart and big fun. Your way next. Earlier this year on Voices of Experience, President John Molidor talked about the importance of a big heart, something CSP Melanie Truehills has truly embraced. The heart means something to you in so, so many ways. And it was kind of a curveball in your life because you got AFib. Explain what it is and what happened. Okay. So AFib, which is also atrial fibrillation, is an irregular heartbeat. And it is a major cause of strokes because what happens is the heart quivers. It doesn't beat rhythmically. So the blood isn't pumped out of the upper chambers of the heart to the lower chambers and out to the body and brain. It actually sits there in pools and forms clots. And then at some point, once the clot gets big enough, it can actually get launched out to the brain and become a stroke. And I was very fortunate that I was home at the time. I was not on the road at the time I had my first episode. I I had gotten back from traveling. I was in my home office pulling email, and all of a sudden my heart felt like it skipped a beat. And then it took off racing and pounding, and and I got very lightheaded and thought I was going to pass out. So I went to lay down on the sofa, and my husband came running over with the blood pressure cuff. And he, you know, he thought maybe my something was wrong with my blood pressure. But he happened to notice, it was warm weather, so I was wearing shorts, he happened to notice that my right leg looked different from my left. My right leg was as white and as cold as snow. So... We call the we call my doctor and they said get to the emergency room right away. And long story short, I had had blood clots in my right leg and behind my right eye. And they said that was due to a condition called atrial fibrillation, which at the time I had never heard of. Wow, and so that happens. What was the road to recovery like for that? So they said, we'll give you a blood thinner, an anticoagulant medication to help avoid clots forming again. And we'll give you some other medication to help keep your heart rate slow. Because with atrial fibrillation, your heart rate can not only be irregular, but it can also be very, very fast. So they gave me medication to slow it down. And they said, you'll need to be real careful with your diet because you're on this medication. And and it can be impacted by having too much in the way of, of green vegetables and those kinds of things. So I did have to make some changes to diet. I was already, I, I love green vegetables. I love healthy fruits 
and vegetables. And I had to make some changes in what my diet was. And I had to be careful in traveling. I could I could actually be um, sitting at my desk. I could be leaning over washing the dog. I could be out walking. And all of a sudden, my heart would take off racing. And I would uh, potentially almost pass out from it. Wow. And so, so little is actually said about aphid but you're changing that yes and that has become your passion and it has also made you money and how often in the speaking business they tell us pursue your passion and you will make money but did you ever think it would be because you uh could have died i never thought that i would have something like that that would change my life so dramatically at the time i had been a road warrior. I was on the road all the time working for a technology company. I was with Cisco Systems at the time and spending a lot of time with customers. And so I had to totally change my life from that perspective in that I I knew that I would not be able to be on the road quite as much, needed to be closer to family, that sort of thing. After a couple of years, I had a surgical procedure that hopefully has cured my AFib. I've been AFib-free for 11 years now. And once I was AFib-free, I knew I had to do something. So I started a nonprofit organization, a patient advocacy organization for those living with atrial fibrillation and for their family members to help educate people on what you could do to get your life back and what were the potential treatment options, some of which could potentially even cure your AFib or at the very least put it into remission for a long time. So you really take a giant leap into an entrepreneurial area that's not very known, but you know that this is what you want to do, and you fast forward these many years later, and what's happened? It has been the most amazing ride. When I first started out, I was really working primarily with patients. We brought up a website, and fortunately, I had worked in technology companies, so I had the technology background, and we brought up a website. We started educating people. I started attending medical conferences and covering it as media, effectively, and writing up the things that people needed to know. Well, along the way, I was invited to speak at a medical conference. Patients never spoke at medical conferences, but I'm coming up on my seventh year speaking at that medical conference, and that one has caused me to go around the globe speaking at medical conferences everywhere. I spoke at Asia Pacific Heart Rhythm Society last year in Melbourne, Australia. I uh, spoke in Warsaw last fall. I've spoken all over Europe, all uh, Latin America, uh, Asia, just everywhere. And the thing that's really been surprising is because of my experience and because I've, I'm an advocate for patients and because I've learned so much at medical conferences, I've started being invited to participate as a key informant on task forces alongside all the major doctors in this space. And American Heart Association uh, 
invited me to be the first non-clinician to be involved in their guidelines process. And the guidelines are what control what doctors use when they're treating patients with AFib. You know, what what are the treatment protocols, what are the, the medications, procedures, etc. So I've been involved in those kinds of things. I've had the opportunity to participate in coalitions in the U.S., working with many celebrities to raise awareness of AFib. I have had the opportunity to participate in many global coalitions as well. And I currently co-chair the Global Sign Against Stroke in Atrial Fibrillation Task Force of about 60 organizations worldwide focused on ridding the world of strokes. Melanie, thank you so much. Thank you. CSP Rick Metzger really takes to heart and believes in the power of fee integrity. You know, you've been in this game for a while, and you've had a lot of people. It's interesting. We talk about fee and fee integrity, and people make different amounts of money for different add-ons and value in what they do. But you found your sweet spot is with one of your sweet spots is certainly speaking to, to kids and getting into the schools. And school budgets only go so far, especially high schools that we're talking about. So I guess there's this is really a two-part question. One why is that fee integrity so important to you? And why, when other people tell you, this is crazy, we love you, you're great, why don't you, why don't you jump up and do something else so more bureaus can book you? Well, first, first and foremost is, um, you know, I've got, I've got colleagues in NSA that, you know, when the, when the, when the fee structure and, and the wave was high, they kept raising their fees. And, um, and, and, and I can tell you two of them, and I'm not going to use names, but um, are now working part-time jobs doing other things because they price themselves out of the market. Um, and, and I haven't. I haven't raised my fee, and in, in, uh, this will now be my 10th year that I have not changed my fee. Um, Harvey Alston, a dear friend of mine from Columbus, this is his 15th year where he has not changed his fee. Um, and, you know, we both are of the mindset that if you're good at what you're doing and you're out there speaking, you're going to have an income. And so that's why I, I don't, you know, I will not raise my fee. I will, you know, I've got bureaus that, that want to book me for $7,500, and I will not do it. And that, as I was just sharing with you, I'm going to try to tag a couple of schools and say the program is being sponsored by this company, but I won't let somebody book me for a, more than what my fee is because the integrity part of it's there. And then when I work with schools, you get principals that get together and they talk. And they'll say, you know, we had this speaker, he charged us X, Y, Z, and if, if you've charged another principal a, a totally different dollar amount, your credibility is shot instantly. So, you know, I, I maintain that fee integrity across the board. Corporate audiences are different from associations and different from speaking in the education realm. Why or what do you get out of speaking to these kids that keeps you in this game? Well, you know, there's an old saying, you know, that uh, if you work with kids, you'll, you'll stay young, try to keep up with them, you'll die young. Um, I truly believe that by working with them, I learn as much from them as, they, as I hope they learn from me. Um, so the advantage of, of what I'm doing every day by sharing the message of, of what I overcome, the challenges I've overcome, the obstacles that I've overcome. Um, but when they come and share with me, I use their information to share with others so that it's it's relevant for their age bracket and you know it's to me it's it's no different speaking corporate speaking association speaking high school and i you know 20 percent of my business is is corporate and association um and you know i don't go teach about q9000 and i don't get into that kind of stuff but you know 
Ray Pelletier, who was a dear friend of mine through NSA, who's no longer with us, shared with me years ago when I said I wasn't going to speak to teachers. He said, Rick, he said, that's stupid. He said, you've got a message they need to hear. And I said, I'm not qualified to speak to teachers. And he said, Rick, teachers are nothing more than overgrown children. And he said, you can share the same message. So even the message that I share when I go speak with corporate, whether it be John Deere or, or the North American Equipment Association, you know, it's, it's the same message. I may tweak it a little bit, but I still share the things that they need to hear uh, about overcoming daily obstacles and dealing with daily challenges. So the message is still the same. It's just you twist it a little bit so that it's geared to their age bracket versus what you're sharing with high school students. So speakers have to overcome daily obstacles, and I find that a lot of speakers are very type A and perfectionists. And I'm not one of those speakers, so maybe I'm in the I'm an anomaly. But I I know in reaching out and talking with people, they that's I think that's sometimes an obstacle for people. Do you find that a lot in with your speaking buddies, or do you find that a lot in the corporate world? Um, world? I I find it a lot that um, you know. And, and I'm a prime example. You know, I've been at this for, for 30 plus years. Um, I'm not at a point where I, you know, I just fill out a, a questionnaire for a client that I'm going to be working for, and they wanted to know what kind of special equipment I needed. And I said, I needed a flip chart, two broad tip markers, and an easel. And, and he said, you don't use PowerPoint. And I said, no. I said, if you turn a PowerPoint system on and turn your back to 3,500 high school students in a gymnasium, I said, you're going to hit with spitballs and everything else in between. So, you know, it's not about, you know, so I don't need to know about technology. Um, what I'm doing works for me. And that's, you know, and, and that's what I want people to understand. And, and, and I work with a lot of beginning speakers even. And I tell them, you know, find what works for you. Don't try to be somebody else. Be you. And be unique at what you do. You know, I'm very fortunate. I've got a little bit of an athletic background. Uh, you know, I've overcome a challenge from a severe accident. And, and that's what makes me unique speaking to that group of people. Um, you know, never dreaming that, that a motorcycle accident was going to open doors for me. You know, I'm, I've now spoken in the last three years to, to veterans groups dealing with, with veterans who've, got, who've become amputees and what it took to have the mindset to, to get past the challenges I've dealt with. Because I was told I'd never walk without the aid of, of, of crutches or a cane again. And I'm doing it. So it's, you know, it's using, using each person's unique ability to get your message out rather than trying to emulate what everybody else is doing or what everybody tells you you've got to do, um, I tell them to forget it and do what you're good at. So in other words, sometimes it's you don't have to go with the current, you can swim against it. Absolutely. I, in fact, I just shared with Patrick Donatio today, um, I've got from, from back when I joined NSA and, and came to my first convention in 92, everybody said you had to have this elaborate trifold brochure. I went home immediately and made a trifold brochure and printed three, you know, 5,000 copies of it. And out of those 5,000, I think I probably threw 4,000 of them away a year later. But I kept one of them just as a reminder not to do what everybody else told you to do. Do what you're good at and, and be, be unique. Be yourself. What's the most rewarding thing for you about this career at this point when you've done it for so long? Um, the, the letters and, and the response that I get from the young people. Um, you know, prime example is, is I spoke at a school this past year and um, had a young lady come up to me after the program was over and uh, asked to have some time with me, and, and we spent about 25 minutes talking. And there were a lot of things in her, her comments to me that, that led me to, to understand that she was basically talking about committing suicide. So I, you know, I went to the assistant principal of, of the freshman class and shared with him, um, and you know, come to find out, um, 
she had been sexually abused by her boyfriend who was three years older than her five weeks earlier and was now being bullied by him and, and several of his friends. Um, and she had was contemplating suicide. She went and talked with him yet that afternoon and asked for help. Um, I got a, an amazing letter from her and her parents thanking me for the difference that I made in her life. And there was 1,800 high school freshmen in that audience that day. But the fact that whatever I, you know, in some small way that I said something that resonated with her, that made her feel I was talking directly to her, I saved a young lady's life that day. And and in, in 25 years of, of doing this full time, um, I've had probably 15 or 20 of those where young people have either come up to me and, and give me a bag with pills in them, um, with a suicide note, uh, parents that have sent me letters. You know, that is, you know, you can't put a, a value of a paycheck on knowing that you've impacted a young person's life. Rick, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Thank you. Time for the monthly oops moment when speakers reveal, well, when things didn't go quite as planned. This is Patrick Henry, and my biggest oops moment was almost throwing up in front of 500 people. I was uh, speaking at Auburn University, and it was for a coaches' conference. And so these are all SEC football or football coaches from around the country, and a lot of SEC guys there. It was in the it was in the alumni center, and they the carpet was so new they were actually just putting finishing put it down when I went to do a sound check. I'd gone jogging earlier in the day in 95 degree heat, and so about 20 minutes before I went on stage, I started feeling bad. And it got worse, and I start speaking, and I started to get a little nauseated. And I'm like, wouldn't that be horrible if I had to throw up? But no, that would never happen. What's ha- I'm having a heat stroke. And so I'm sweating. I'm pouring. I mean, I'm sweating through my jacket. And, um, and I started coming up with a contingency plan. To, um, as I'm speaking, I, I picked the door that I was going to run through as I ripped my microphone off and you know, did whatever I had to do. But it turns out that um, I made it through. I cut the, the speech about 25 minutes short and um, went straight to the bathroom. And guys were coming in telling me how wonderful I did. <laughs> Horrifying moment. I stopped running. Exercising altogether for that matter. <laughs> this is Merritt Guest, and here is my oops moment. Uh, it was my very first professional speaking engagement ever. So I was already excited, nervous, and um, they had a podium set up for me to speak behind, and I thought, well, I'm definitely not going to speak behind the podium. So I, But I, I thought maybe that was the expectation. So I get up behind the podium. They have that nice little block for me to stand on because I am tiny, and I proceed to get up on it and topple right over it. I mean, flat on my face, first program ever, 100 people in the room, and and I was only getting up there to tell them, I'm not going to speak behind this podium. So I get up off the ground, and I climb back up on the block, and I say, well, I was only getting up here to tell you, I'm not going to talk to you behind this podium and they had a good laugh and uh fortunately it went good from there but i will never speak behind a podium even to tell you that i'm not going to stand there <laughs> all right fly peeps i am vernice fly girl armor coming back at you and uh i'll share my oops moments i actually have three one 
I actually forgot my flight suit. So when I got there, I didn't even have my flight suit to put on. So, but I did have my jacket. Ah, I made it work. I made it. You, you have to make it work, right? Uh, another one. This is in the very beginning. I believe it was my second or third keynote, and I was scheduled to speak at nine, and I got there at eight thirty. Uh, and I thought that was early back then, right? Got there at 8.30, it was a Marine Corps um, civilian audience, and I walk in, and they get on their break, and I'm starting to set up, and things, but things felt a little weird, a little off, and I was like, well, are we still on schedule for 9 o'clock? And they said, well, actually, you were scheduled for 8. I was like, oh! <laughs> yeah! And um, I don't know, that just rustled me so much even just now. I can't even remember what the other oops was. <laughs> but yeah, I'll never forget that. It's Jill's Juicy Bites, the place to get communication strategies to grow your business. Here's Jill Schiffelbein. Hey everybody, Jill Schiffelbein back with you to deliver another Juicy Bite. This time we are talking about one of my favorite things. Data. Yes, I freaking love numbers. I love looking into behind the scenes to see what is driving engagement, what is driving connection, and of course, what's driving my bottom line. So let's talk a little bit about data for dollars. In October's VOE segment, I had a chat with Kate about my YouTube presence, something that's done very, very well for me. One of the things that I didn't talk about in that interview, though, is when I was diving in to all of my data analytics in my YouTube channel, I found some pretty surprising insights. One of those was that over 60% of my traffic was non-US based. That puzzled me initially, but then I understood why. Because people were looking for public speaking advice and a lot of them were wanting to communicate more effectively in the English language. So I started tweaking my keywords a little bit, changing some content on my site to address the non-native speaker audience, and my stats soared. Then I knew I had a captive market and an audience. So what did I do? I listened to the data. Folks, data is how you listen to your audience when they are not speaking to you. The data is them communicating with you through their clicks, through their patterns, through their engagement, through their time on your site or time on a video. Data and mining it and analyzing it is how you listen effectively in this digital space. So by listening to my market, I was able to ascertain that English is a second language, presentation skills in the business environment were going to be huge. So what did I do? What any entrepreneur would do? I created a product around it. So I launched business presentation skills for non-native speakers. I popped that baby up put it on my e-commerce platform, and then started advertising it on YouTube and on my videos as a way to drive traffic. But you know what else I did? I even created targeted Facebook ads that were targeted at the top 12 countries that were most viewing my videos. I also found out what age group was most viewing the videos. I also found out that it was about 70% male. I also found out what industries or self-selected interests people had all through 
data, targeted Facebook ad campaigns to them and saw an ROI back on my site in terms of product sales conversion. Folks, that's how it's done. If you use technology, the data and the analytics at your disposal to listen to your audience, there are huge opportunities. And I don't tell you that story to say, yay, pat myself on the back. I tell you that story because you are all sitting right now on top of potential gold mines that you have not even dug into yet because you haven't listened to the digital voices that are coming to your content. So here's what I want to talk to you about. Last time, uh, or it was October, I talked about search engine optimization and about how people are now searching in terms of questions. What this means is that how-to is on the rise. In fact, from 2014 to 2015, the amount of how-to searches increased by 70, 70%, folks. That's huge, and that trend continues to rise. What does that mean for us? It means that if we combine the questions that our audience is asking with our expertise and understand the patterns in our data, who is looking at our content, where are they located, what demographics are they in, we can better target content and better advertise more effectively to increase our bottom line and, of course, to serve more people. We love what we do. We have expertise. We want to get it out there because we believe we can add value to people's lives. So darn it, listening to the data will let you do that. Here's a couple resources you can have. If you're having a hard time thinking, well, I have data on my website, but it's just basic and I don't really know what people are asking. Well, here's four tools that you can look into to see what questions are being asked out there about your subject area. Number one, answerthepublic.com. Number two, faqfox.com. Number three, Google Suggest. And number four, keywordtool.io. Those are four, and I know a ton of content marketing experts that recommend all of those. Now, of course, if you don't want to rewind this, go to bit.ly or bit.ly slash Jill's Juicy Bites. That's a supplemental site for all of my VOE episodes, and you can get all of those resources there. So in summary, data is how you listen to your digital audience. If you're not mining your data, if you're not analyzing your data, you're missing potential opportunities. Your audience is communicating with you even if they are not speaking or writing. They're communicating by their clicks and their actions on your site and on your content. Use the data, listen to them, create, and then celebrate. That's it for this month's. I'll be back again with another Juicy Bite next VOE. Let's check in with the National Speakers Association President, John Molidor, for our monthly conversation. Uh, Once again, one of my favorite things about being part of Voices of Experience, being the chair this year, is my conversations with Dr. John Molidor, who, of course, is the president of the National Speakers Association. Dr. John, how are you? Doing great, Kate. How about yourself? I'm excellent. And, you know, we're talking about giving back in your business, paying it forward, caring about one another. And one of the things that I do like about NSA, about the people that I've met, is I get that feeling of community. I get that feeling of family. And, and certainly you've been around longer, and now you're at the, the, uh, the top of the helm in leadership, if you will, as you serve as the president. What do you see as far as membership and that feeling? 
One of the things about NSA that is quite remarkable, especially when you compare it to other associations or other organizations, it does seem to have a big heart. There seems to be a sense of sharing, a way for people to give to others. Now, there's also a downside on that, and we'll address that a little bit later on. But for the most part, people seem more than willing to mentor, to share, to guide speakers as they come into this profession. And it is really quite remarkable that yeah. they do that. Yeah, you know, I agree with you. And and when we talk about mentoring, did you have a mentor? Did you have a mentor in your profession? In my profession, I had a couple mentors as I started in. I started in actually in the medical school at a pretty young age. And so I was fortunate to have some individuals who literally took me underneath their wing who would say, be concerned about this, look out for that, be aware of these things, because they had seen that if you make those mistakes, some of them actually prove pretty fatal and could either derail your career or really stop it. And they were willing to say, here's some things that they learned. And what was nice is they also referenced it in terms of their own experiences. They rarely said, here are the three things that you must do in order to be successful. They would say things like, this is what I did, here's why, and here was the situation in which I did them. And so you're able to kind of learn from their experience, and that was very nice. One of my fears sometimes in our profession is a lot of times we slide into the area where we start telling people these are the three things you must do to be blank, whether it be successful, to get ahead. And I worry sometimes about that if we move from that experiential to what I call more experimental, where it almost sounds like this is what you have to do. Well, as you know, there's so many different mm-hmm. paths to this profession of speaking, I think sometimes we have to say, these were my circumstances, or this was the sign of the times, or here's where I live, and here's the environment. Because not all those things then are applicable across all the different areas or aspects of speaking. But when people say to me, this worked for me, Here's kind of the background. Here's the situation. Then I can pull from that and learn from their experiences and then maybe shape how I move forward. So, again, I was quite fortunate to have a couple people who kind of looked out for me and helped guide me along the path. Same thing in speaking. Although I think I tended to approach the speaking part of it is then I looked for people in our association who I either admired, who I thought were doing great work, so I could both observe them, and then as I got to know them, I could learn from them also, and that's proved vital in then my speaking career. Wow. It's interesting. I would say the same thing for me. It's been incredibly powerful for me to seek out the people who I admire, who I watch what they're doing in their business, and I see what they're, how they're able to execute. And it's funny that you say that, Dr. John, because in watching them, they are the people that do what you say. They're not doing the experimental. They're being vulnerable with me and telling me exactly what they did in their circumstances, what did work for them, what didn't, and not saying, you must do the one, two, three, four, five things. I think there's a tendency to list, don't you? 
Oh, very much because it's, you know, we're in the field of communicating. And so if we can organize and conceptualize and then say to people, here are the three things, boom, it's just a nice way to start framing your world, remembering your world. So, yeah, it is nice to list. But I think it is more powerful when people start to share that experience. And as you said, they're vulnerable. And what I love about NSA is not only then can you observe the person speaking, but you also are learning from them. And it's like a double way of learning. It's like, wow, I'm watching that person. I'm seeing how they're doing, whether it be the mechanics, the use of their voice, their movement. But then you're actually learning their content. And for me, there's a lot of power in that. And then there's also going to be memory. I'm going to remember that and then move it into how might I modify that? What might I be able to do to move everything forward? Mm. When we talk about the other side of that with being the the mentee, first you're the mentee, or you could still be a mentee in, in many aspects, and then you're the mentor, how important is it to pay it forward when we talk about big heart? How do you think that helps society or in our profession makes people feel? I think it's huge for us because it is one of the professions that you can pay it forward. So as you get to a certain point or as you're learning that if you bring other people along, we advance the entire profession. When you think about the area of research, researchers don't just sort of do their research and then hang on to their results. They put it out there. Now, they put it out there to be replicated, duplicated, and verified. And when we give like that, we advance the whole profession, wherever you're in doing research. But in speaking, then we're also helping to bring on newer members or people new to the profession. And then what's so cool is they push us. I mean, that's one of the great things about our universities when you're in them is that as people come in, they push you. You have to keep learning. You have to keep ahead of them. You have to learn from them. You have to keep growing. And as a profession, how cool is it that as new members come into our association, they push us. They teach us. They make sure that we're learning new stuff. And as you know, the world is changing so quickly that if we just are flat and we say, I'm not going to learn anymore, well, we're quickly probably going to be put out of business in that situation. So that's great that we can do that. Now, the downside that, yeah, so the downside that I referred to earlier is that sometimes the mentoring becomes a little bit confused to new members because if you're doing it as colleague to colleague or professional speaker to professional speaker, then it's pretty clear what the role is, where we start to create uh, maybe a little bit of danger is when somebody is a professional speaker, but they're also, if you will, a vendor, and a new individual doesn't quite know where are you a colleague and you're sharing this, or now are you a vendor trying to sell me so that I buy from you? And again, I don't have any, you know, if you want to be a vendor, want to be a professional speaker, don't care which. But I think in fairness to a new member coming in, it really helps if they know which position you're speaking from. Mm-hmm. It's colleague to colleague we share. Vendor to colleague you're selling. And I think it behooves us as an association to make 
sure we're relatively clear on that distinction and we do it pretty early on. Yeah. I say that, having gone out there and I've heard, you know, from the various members of chapters saying, oh, I didn't know that somebody was selling me. I thought they were first sharing with me. And so that's something I think we as an association have to be aware of, and we as individuals have to be aware of that, because, as you know, we can quickly go from sharing to selling. And, I don't, again, I'm perfectly okay with both, but sometimes a new member might not quite know which perspective you're coming to them. Yeah, absolutely. Clarify for better connection. The more clarity there is, then there isn't that awkwardness either of trying to figure out, oh, I've been duped. I didn't realize that. Just be clear. And at the end, uh, that'll cost you uh, $2,000. Really? Oh, I thought you were sharing with me. Uh, We'll speak again next month. (laughs) Thank thank you. Thank you, Kate. Thank you. here with the other Molitor, Dr. Molitor. So um, what a treat to get to speak with, I'm going to call you the first lady. Thank you. Of the NSA, (laughs) who is a breast cancer surgeon. And one of the things that is on your husband's list for the year that he hopes to achieve, and I know he will, is big brain, big heart are two of the components on the list. And you really fit the bill for two of those. And when I say that, we look at the brain and uh, genomics and what's going on there and, and how that's changed medicine. And and um, I think a lot of doctors think that's a beautiful thing. What do you say? It's wonderful, and it's been such a wonderful experience to have lived through cancer treatments when we used to just throw the bucket of treatments on someone and hope for the best, and now we call it individualized or personalized care so that we can target different areas of the defect and make a huge difference in the kind of therapy that you might have. How much of a shift has that been? So, where, Have you seen that explode in the last five years, or just recently it's just really leap? I would say in the last five years it's very clear that we've made changes and leaps and bounds in terms of the kinds of therapies that we offer people. We've talked about reducing surgical care. We've talked about targeting the kind of chemotherapy Not everyone needs radiation therapy, or we can have more focused radiation therapy. We can target the site. All of that has been developed over the last, say, in my career. I've been in that research since 1990, and now we're seeing it just expand. And we're making a huge difference. I talk about with patients that we we can offer you survivorship that we couldn't before, so we're living longer lives, and we have to pay attention to that. So talking about Dr. John's big heart, big brain, I have to talk to my patients about being heart healthy because for my breast cancer patients, they may not die of breast cancer, but they're going to die of heart disease. So we talk about the future and preventing recurrences, living a healthy life, looking at attitudes, looking at your heart, looking at what your, li- your quality of life. And so much of research now includes quality, quality of life studies because you're going to survive. So we, we talk about survivorship and you talk about nutrition. How tough is that, though? We live in a fast food world. Oh, we're so busy, but we're, we're skinny. Hey, we went to the gym, but we ate a Big Mac for dinner because we're exhausted. So what, 
what do you need to do to get the right nutrition? And for goodness sake, our soil isn't as, as good as it used to be for the most part. I think that we should move to as much of a plant-based nutritional plan as possible. We're blessed with farmer's market. Go to the farmer's market when you can in season. Talk to the farmers. Find out how they're growing their produce. Talk about any pesticides. You want to be as clean as possible. Check out different sources, just like Dr. John talks about research. Check out your food sources and get the best food sources that you can, but be as plant-based as possible. We know that we need to have those dark green leafy vegetables, nuts, seeds, the right kinds of fats. If we do fish, we want the right kinds of fish, the tuna, the salmon. We want to be brain healthy. We want to be heart healthy. We need to get out and exercise. Walking is a great exercise. I say, do what you're going to do. Go out and walk. The hardest part of exercise is not to go home first. It's just to go out and walk. Walk during lunch. Take 30 minutes of your lunch and walk. So do something that you'll do. And it's so important. But you know when you say that about exercise, you know how that is. You buy the outfit. Uh, for goodness sake, the comedian Tina Fey has made a living yeah. on that. You go, you get the outfits, you have the, I mean, I know I've done it myself. Where You get everything, you get the setup, you get the gym membership, and then you don't use it. So I thought it, I think it's key that you're saying walking because who can't walk? I mean, right. if you hopefully a lot of us can are able to do that. So you can just go right out the front door, right? Absolutely. Have your sneakers in the car, park your car at home, put your sneakers on, don't even get out of the car, you know, first get your sneakers on and then go walk before you walk in the door and get it done get it done wake up in the morning go for a walk take your shower and go to work it's the right thing to do and that's why i love walking everybody can do it yeah great advice so survivorship for you seeing that switch as as somebody who's a surgeon and somebody who started in the 90s that for your own heart how does that make you feel that more patients are surviving I think it's fantastic. So when I talk to someone who has a diagnosis of cancer, two questions. How did I get it? Am I going to die? First thing, I don't know why you got cancer. I know that the research shows that 70% of the causes of cancer are diet and lifestyle. Well, hello. That's crucial. You have control. People want control. But now that you have it, am I going to die? I can say, most likely you're not. And let's talk about how we can develop a therapy that works for you, your cancer's biology. We're we're looking at your cancer's biology, not a generic breast cancer. And we can develop therapies for your cancer. We have tests, like you said, genomics, where we can actually look at that tumor and figure out what's right for your cancer, not Sue, Sally, or Jane's. And then we can talk about your future. Now we can have a conversation about your future in terms of your life and what you're going to do. How does it make you feel as a doctor that you're able to do? Because that's a shift for, for what it was in the beginning. The diagnosis, you mention it, the, what does the patient ask you, you address it, and then you've got so many patients and you have to move on, you have surgery scheduled. So that has to be a completely different way of doing business. It's what's right for me, and it's what I truly love to do, is to help people through all of those different aspects of a diagnosis of cancer. Unfortunately, the medical system doesn't allow us always to take the time with people, and I think that's what's frustrating for a lot of people. You know, we come in, I don't, but doctors come into the office with a computer, and they're not seeing the 
emotion that a patient has on their face when they're coming in with a diagnosis of cancer. And you need to see that so you can address it from the beginning. And you can't see that behind a computer. But that's that's how medicine's changing. And so I hope physicians of the future can work around that so they don't lose the art of medicine, which is going to make such a difference in people's outcome. You know, a lot of speakers will be listening to this, and speakers are notorious for horrible lifestyles in some ways, because if you're successful, a lot of times you're on a lot of planes, and you might have great intentions, but you're right. you're globetrotting, and you're speaking, and sometimes you're speaking three times in a week or more than that. So I, I hope this does resonate with some of them, because as you mentioned in the beginning, talking about lifestyle. So lifestyle means stress, correct? It, that's part of it, and I think that we have to all learn how to manage stress in a healthy way. But I, I travel a lot, and I, I prepare. So I have a pair of sneakers that are lightweight for travel, and they go with me everywhere. I have workout clothes that can also take me outside if I have to just go out and go for a shopping spree, but I can still wear the same So I, I'm very efficient about what I bring. And I have a nutritional plan that I carry with me. So I have a shake mix that I carry with me, and I can get made anywhere. So it's my my plan. I'm prepared so that I'm not left going to a fast food place because I didn't plan for good nutrition. And I think that's what makes a huge difference is to be prepared. Great way to end this, Dr. Molitor. Thanks right, so thank much. You. <laughs> thanks. Once again, we're here with Dave Lieber for a one-minute power thought on writing and creativity. This time we're talking about people, people, people. What does that mean? Well, I know it sounds like a song, but what I mean is that the most important way to communicate in speaking and writing, I think, is to talk about people and not about systems, processes, administrations, procedures. So I don't talk about immigration, which is huge. I talk about Elvira Smith, who came here last year from such and such a place. So I look at the overall story, which is the system, the procedure, the process, and then I ask about the people and go and talk about the people, because the reason, Kate, is we only really want to read about people. We don't want to read about systems, processes, and procedures. And So that's how you make boring stuff, I hate to say boring, I'll put it in quotes, come alive. All right, so humanize. Yeah, find people who are involved and get them involved and write about them and talk to them and learn and be a journalist. People, people, people. One Minute Power Thoughts on writing and creativity with Dave Lee. We'll be back again next month with another one. CSP and funny man Izzy Gazelle on humor and putting it into your presentation. There's so many people that will say, I want to be funny. How can I be funny? What do I need to do? And I know you hear that all the time. Probably at every party you go to, how can I be funny? Give me some lines. It's not like that, is it? It's not an off-the-shelf concept. Humor is a practice. And I think the biggest challenge for folks who are not aware of the practice is the belief that either people are born funny Uh, So they think, oh, they're funny and I can't be as funny as that person, so I'm not going to improve my understanding and use of humor. Or people are quick to go for the punchline without understanding the purposes of humor and why humor is so attractive. You mentioned parties, and you also mentioned that I was the funniest person, which I said, no, 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 no. Because when you are seen as humorous, other people have high expectations of you. So as a humorist, um, a person who does improv, when I 
come to a speech very often, people will come up to me and say, you better be funny because I'm spending time here or I could have been doing something else. So on one hand, there's the allure of the humorous persona. I want to be like that. On the other hand, people expect a lot from you because humor is such a powerful force to make people's lives better. So set the bar low that people don't expect you to be funny. (laughs) I would say let people make their decisions about how funny you are based on how you are in different situations. Because we've all known, and I can admit to trying to be funnier on um, steroids in a way that uh, I wanted to be accepted, I want to be liked, I want to break the ice with a group, so I prepare, used to prepare, and so forth. The key to being a humorous person or a humorous speaker is to be real and to let humor come from both the structure and craft of writing and preparing, knowing what's funny and how to incorporate it, and also to be that person in, in your life. So how do you find out what funny is? How do you find and write that funny? When I work with folks on bringing more humor into their lives or programs, I encourage them to pay attention to when people laugh naturally around them. Very often we say things that we don't know are funny or we're not aware are funny, yet people laugh at that. Those are clues. One of the first skill sets that humorists have is to recognize what's funny automatically, what's funny naturally. And then the, the craft is to begin to jot those things down. Because if it's funny to one person or one situation, it can be replicable. And there are a couple of examples in my in my life where I didn't even know I was saying something funny and people laughed because of something that they found funny and then I incorporated it into my speech. Uh, so I can give you an example if, if you want let, to do Let's that. hear it. I used to be a special education teacher and for a number of years I worked at Bellevue Psychiatric Hospital in New York City. And in, in, in my programs I would talk about the Uh, use of humor in difficult, chaotic situations, operating room humor, gallows humor, because the kids that we worked with never were cured. They were sent away, and we needed humor as a staff to cope, sort of like, um, again, gallows humor or or, um, uh, mash kind of situations. So I I had this line in my keynotes about I used to um, be a special education teacher, and then the line was, and I spent seven years at Bellevue Psychiatric Hospital. And one time, from the audience, somebody yells, were you on staff? (laughs) So ever since then, it goes, I spent seven years at Bellevue Psychiatric Hospital, pause, on staff. (laughs) So that that was a gift to me. Right. That uh, people thought it was funny. Uh, They gave me the line, and I incorporated it. So to go back to that uh, beginning of of this, um, this part, it's really about paying attention to what other people find funny, and that tells you how funny you are. In, uh, in, in the way we roll now, where with the short attention spans and younger audiences, millennials are coming right up, mm-hmm. and a lot of the millennials will be making the decision on meetings. Will, will humor be even bigger, less, or is it going to be the same? Humor, uh, I can't predict that. Humor will always be necessary, whether good times to celebrate, whether bad times uh, to feel more comfortable in, in chaotic situations. In, because we're in the relationship business, humor is a key force for relationships. So I think it will always be necessary. It will always be valued. The other point for meeting planners, when they're hiring us, they're not only hiring us for the topic, they're hiring us 
to create a container where people find value. And when you're a humorous person or the meeting planner hears, oh, that was great, we laughed so hard, thanks. What they're saying is that the experience was important to them and valuable to them because for that hour, two hours, three hours, there was joy in their lives and they learned. And I think it was the um, uh, um, uh, Watterson, Bill Watterson wrote um, uh, Calvin and Hobbes, who said that uh, playing with ideas is, is a creative idea, and playing with ideas is fun. So you can be creative and joyful at the same time. So the meeting planner is not necessarily looking for humor, because if you ask them, what they want is a good program. They want their people to be um, engaged. And humor is very much an engaging aspect. Yeah. How do you know when you are going over the line? I mean, you got to. Are you dancing oh, around you, the line? You, you can tell. You, you, you can tell. You can tell. Uh, I, I was. I did stand up, and you know, in stand up, you know pretty well. They, they call it dying on stage, and it, literally, the air gets sucked out of the room. There is that silence, that deafening silence, where you go, uh oh. And the craft then, or the skill, is to have Plan Bs or to get out of there as fast as possible. And sometimes you make a fatal mistake where you cannot come back. Have you made a fatal mistake ever on stage? I did make a fatal mistake. <laughs> In one of my earliest speeches, uh, I used to teach comedy writing at UMass. And, and when I was first starting, this was where I met business people. It got me out of stand-up comedy. And I met some business folks who invited me to talk to their audiences. And I remember... Um, speaking to a group near my home in western Massachusetts. I used to teach at UMass. And I was being introduced. It was at a synagogue, and the rabbi was introducing me. And he was going on and on and on about all the stuff that I had done and why they're bringing this in and so forth. And I'm standing there, and I'm very new in the business, and I still had been doing comedy, so I'm more of a comedian than a motivational humorist then. And at, he mentioned, and he also teaches, referring to me, at um, UMass, he teaches comedy writing. And I walked out, and the first thing I said is, thank you, Rabbi, I think you should take my class. <laughs> now, the fatal mistake was this is at the beginning of my 45-minute session. Mm-hmm. And this literally, the, the person who gave me the check at the end said, you know, you shouldn't have said that about the rabbi. Gave me the check, and and I I was horrific. It crossed my mind to give the check back. Um, I remember driving and riding in the car back back home, pounding the, the the roof of the car. You idiot! You idiot! That was a fatal mistake to insult not only the person who was introducing me, but the representative of an entire congregation of people. I, I, that's wild. You cut his knees off from the beginning. <laughs> Right, <laughs> and they cut my heart out at the end. So. <laughs> Do you think we'll see in the future more uh, motivational humorists being hired for speaking gigs? Or are we getting away from that? Is it more content oriented out there? How tough is the jungle in finding these gigs? I think that it's not any tougher or easier than it was. It really is about part of it is about how you classify it. There are meeting planners who use motivational humor as the topic because it's this certain slot that they have. They want to make people feel good. They want to get kick people off as a, a keynote. Uh, sometimes they want to lighten up a situation that's stressful. So I don't think it'll it, it's any different. I think the humor has to be relevant to whatever the topic is and the, and the situation is, and it has to fit the style of the humorist. 
I like it. Thanks, Izzy. You're Izzy welcome. G. <laughs> awesome. Thank you. My pleasure. Time to take it out of the park on Voices of Experience. Always fun to catch up with Michael Loftus, comedian, writer extraordinaire. He's been involved with shows like Charlie Sheen's Anger Management, The George Lopez Show, and currently Kevin Can Wait, which is America's number one sitcom. And his star is already crested and rising, so I'm surprised he could even find some time to talk to us. But, Michael, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for calling. Here's how I made it happen. I'm going to be late for work. That's what I made a decision. I would rather talk to you than show up for work on time. Oh, I hope it's not the Kevin James deal so that you get in oh, real yeah. big trouble. It'll be Kevin. It'll be Kevin. I'll walk in. He will look at his watch and go, whoa, guy. Running late, huh? Running It'll late. Fine. So It'll be fine. So doing sitcoms, and this is great and relatable to people who speak and people who perform and people trying to write, frankly, and come up with material. Where do you start? How does that idea become something that ends up on TV? Well, it's really, most of it is just drawn seriously from real life. Like uh, the second episode of Kevin Can Wait in our first season here, I messed up my rotator cuff a few years ago, and I've been doing physical therapy, blah, blah, blah. So I couldn't sleep the way I normally sleep. And so because I had to sleep on my other side, it, like, messed everything up. It, like, one little thing, like, messed up my whole world. And so I was talking to Kevin about that as we were talking about possible stories, and it cracked him up. He just thought that's too funny. Like, you sleep different one night, and then you see the world differently. Like, you, you know, you see the way other people sleep, blah, 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 blah. So we just opened that up to all the writers, and we came up with a full-blown story that Kevin is forced to sleep on the other side of his body, and he sees the world differently, and then he starts seeing plots, and his wife's trying to take over his world, and it, it became a very, very, very funny episode. But yeah, most of the shows that we do are somehow ripped from someone's real life. So you would tell people that's what you need to do. You need to be very observant, right? Walk around, look at what people are doing, think about your own life. Yeah, yeah, I really would. I mean, comedy is there. Comedy is there. Sometimes there's a whole lot of tragedy, but there's always irony. There's always hypocrisy. And just you just have to start to learn to flip it, where most people see something. I mean, Seinfeld is the best example of that ever. Look at all the mundane, the mundane things that, that were just elevated to the most important thing in the world. It's fantastic. Watch when Seinfeld. You- yeah, yeah, I agree with you there. So when you first got into this, did you just have a knack for that? Did you have a knack for looking at things a little bit differently? Yeah, I think so. I think so. I'm the youngest of five kids, big Irish Catholic family, you know, and I, like I didn't get enough attention. Something's fundamentally wrong with me. I'm like, I think most comedians are like fundamentally broken on some level. There's something wrong with a person who gets in seriously who gets up in front of a room of like 250 total strangers and says, I'm going to say something, and then it'd be great if you guys would laugh and give me approval. I mean, there's really, like, there's something, if you just looked at it from a scientific level, you'd be like, oh, what's wrong with that poor lab rat that he wants the other lab rats to like him so much? So you just, you just kind of learn over the years, you know, how to just twist everything just a little bit. Can somebody who's not funny become funny? Absolutely. Absolutely. Just going to take a hell of a long time. 
Yeah, yeah, you can muddle through the process. It's just easier to work with people who are, like, naturally funny. And that's the wonderful thing, and this is no BS. This is just straight-up honest. When I was working with Charlie Sheen, say what you will about Charlie Sheen, he is naturally gifted. He has a sense of timing and a sense of whatever it is. He's got that thing where he's just funny. Kevin James has it in spades. In spades. I wrote this bit for the show where he's making, you ever had that dip out of a bread bowl? You know, you get a loaf of yes. bread. And you dip it up. So he digs too far. He puts in the dip and the dip starts pouring through. And then I wrote all this other stuff he could do to try to, you know, uh, to try to plug up the hole and blah, blah, blah. So you give him something that's relatively funny. You know, I'll give that a five on a scale of one to ten. Then you give it to him, who's such a naturally gifted comedian, and he just, he just blows it up. Now all of a sudden, it's you know, a five turns into an eleven. It's fantastic. Yeah, so he has that ability, like you say, but other people and people that are listening to us, they could hone that skill. Is it a thing of fear? You just have to jump in, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and this is what I tell when I'm when I'm out on the road and I'm doing stand up or whatever. People are like, oh, I'm thinking about getting into stand up. What should I do? Start. Start. And don't base anything off your first night. You have to commit to doing it at least 10 times. And then you can think, well, is this something that I really want to do? Is this making me happy or is it making me miserable? And if it's making you happy, then keep going. If it's making you miserable, we'll try things differently or stop doing it. Not everybody has to be a comedian. Yeah. But the same thing with writers. People are like, oh, I want to be a writer. I want to be a writer. Well, here, it's easy. Start writing. Boom. You're a writer. You're a writer. And the only way to get better is to keep writing. Yeah, and so that's what you did, too, as well, right? When you sit down, because you're writing. It might be in your head, you're thinking of ideas, but you still have to flush it out on the page. Exactly. Exactly. And there's a couple trade secrets that I will keep well secret, because I'm not going to help everybody that much. (laughs) (laughs) Come on, give us one. Come on, Michael. Okay, one trade secret. And this this is for real. And this is something that it took me a long time to learn. When you write... Go from the beginning and go to the end, right? That makes a lot of sense when you say it, when you hear it. Start at the beginning and go to the end. What a lot of people do is they start at the beginning, they get to the middle, then they go, oh, you know what? I'm going to change the beginning. And then they go all the way back and they start over again. And they never finish, they never finish, they never finish. They never complete a movie, they never complete a script, they never complete a story. You're going to do a rewrite anyway. Start from the beginning, go all the way to the end. Then go back and change your beginning and, and work on your rewrite. That's a huge one. That's a huge one. That's like a million-dollar gift that I just gave away. You're welcome, America. <laughs> Michael, thank you. I love that. Start at the beginning. You're right, because you know what? I have I have written two books, but I've done that. The first book took me 10 years because I did exactly what you said. Do you know who else did that? Who? J.R.R. Tolkien. Ah. When, he was, when he was writing Lord of the Rings, like the second most popular book, it's like right below the Bible. He kept rewriting it and rewriting it and rewriting it. And he was doing that longhand. That's why it took so long. Yeah. Yeah, that's Yes, that's I'm a geek. I've just admitted that. I'm a Tolkien mm-hmm. geek. I like Star Wars. I live in my mother's basement and I play video games. <laughs> that's why you're so, so funny. Is it more competitive now than ever in this field? Yes. Yes. You would think with all the different shows and all the different cable outlets that there's always more jobs. There's always more writers and more competition. 
It's crazy. We looked it up. I was on a show a million years ago for NBC, and we looked it up. And it's it literally, there are more jobs for brain surgeons than there are who people, uh, people who write comedy for television. Wow. I have a harder job than a brain surgeon. <laughs> so it's, really what people should say, like when they, when they see a difficult situation, it's not like, oh, hey, guy, it's not brain surgery. No, hey, it's not sitcom writing. How about that? Yeah, there you go. So to hit it out of the park, your trade secret work, certainly look for the humor every single day and sometimes what is tragedy and just keep at it, right? Be tenacious. Yeah, yeah. Be tenacious. And here's the wonderful thing. There are more outlets than ever. I mean, if you want to be a writer, somebody like that book, um, oh, it was just a movie with Matt Damon, The Martian. That's a self-published book. That was a guy who wrote code in Silicon Valley, and he's like, I'm going to write this book about a guy who gets stranded on Mars. And he didn't care that there had already been movies like Robinson Crusoe on Mars, and there's the movies, cats. He just did it, and he self-published, and it got into the right hands, and it can happen. The American dream is alive and well. The great American novel is alive and well. Unfortunately, journalism is taking a big dirt nap. Journalism is dead, but we can still write fiction. We can still write fiction. On the performance side, how do you nail it on the performance side? So like a lot of speakers listening to us, what can they do? You got any good tricks for us at Trade Secret? Nerves, nerves Um, get to you? Yeah, nerves get to you. Unfortunately for that one, I think you just have to do it once again. You know, hey, imagine your whole audience is wearing their underwear. No, (laughs) that that doesn't really do it. That's just something you have to overcome. It's such, here's, here's what I would say. And there's another, like, huge trade secret. Get up in front of a room full of strangers and just stand there for, like, 10 seconds. 10 seconds is a very, very, very long time. Stand there for 10 seconds and don't say a word. And guess what? The world will not end. The world will not end. And their opinion of you does not matter. And it's just a giant, the more you put it off for those people who are afraid of public speaking, the more you put it off, the more powerful that monster gets and the bigger that fear is going to get. You just have to go out there and tackle it head on. And the world won't end and everything will be fine and, and everything, everything will just continue on as normal. And you'll be like, wow, that wasn't as bad as I thought it was going to be. I didn't lose control of my bladder in front of those people. I didn't vomit. I didn't, you know, take a giant poo on the stage. I'm okay. And then the next time you'll be a little bit better. And then you'll, God help you, you'll start having fun. (laughs) I love it. Perfect place to end this. Please apologize to Kevin James for us. But uh, we appreciate the fact that we could steal some time away. Oh, it's always great. And for more information about me and my wonderful life, (laughs) go to theloftestparty.com. It's the website that's taken America by storm. See, that's the other thing. If you want to be a performer, if you want to be a writer, don't be afraid to shamelessly plug your website, theloftestparty.com. Michael, That's probably thank the you. biggest trick. <laughs> <laughs> Plug away. Michael, thank you. Always great to talk to you. Here's Kate Delaney with If You Want to Get Heard. There are so many choices when it comes to the platforms you can use to push out your content and have it consumed. But ultimately, if you truly want to get heard, work on creating the material that makes you excited to get out of bed every day. Don't be afraid to experiment with how you deliver it. I thought Rachel Weintraub, a well-known consultant and developer of diverse content for Tegna Media and iHeartMedia, with a Rolodex, by the way, filled with megawatt talent, said it best at a recent NSA influence panel. 
when you know better, you do better. And uh, sometimes you've got to go back and do some more work. All because you've been doing it this way for a while doesn't mean it's not time to pivot, go back, and do it better. And keep working at it. Keep reinventing yourself at another level in a different way to where you're excited to get up and go. Even though you're grinding, it doesn't feel like a grind. It's got to be fun. If it's not fun, don't do it. The money comes. The money comes. The people come when you're having an amazing time. And that work is fun. Like, I love it. It's like it, it intoxicates me. And if you don't feel that, you're not doing the right thing. Speaking of getting heard, wow, I'm so excited to finally welcome to the mic our incoming NSA president, Brian Walter. Brian, so sorry the door's been locked before. No problem. You you know, it seemed suspicious, but then I thought, I mean, come on, I'm being paranoid, right? Right, but you're here now, and that's the important thing. So, Brian, what are you going to share with us today? Well, Kate, one thing I know all NSA members would really benefit to know is that... I'm sorry, Brian. I think we need to leave the uh, studio. No, 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 it's fine. Let's wait it's it up. It's not safe. We have to go. Oh, come on, Kate. I just got in here. Bye. God, fine. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.